0: You are now rocking with a jazz hammer. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this special episode of The Rock Behind the Climb. I am the jazz hammer, Quintadzo. For those who listened to my last episode on Joshua Tree, you know that I had a conversation with writer, podcaster, and Climbing Zine founder, Luke Michal. Luke, for those who don't know, wrote a few books on his experiences rock climbing, and started an indie magazine called The Climbing Zine that publishes stories from climbers all over. His most recent endeavor and recent I got to know of him is through his podcast called The Dirtbag State of Mind, which chronicles some of the stories he wrote about in his books. He recently finished Season 1 of The Dirtbag State of Mind podcast and I really enjoyed it and would definitely recommend it. I was lucky enough to sit down with him and talk to him about his experiences living and climbing in Joshua Tree for an entire winter season. I took some snippets of the conversation to use on my latest podcast episode on the geology of Joshua Tree rock climbing, which you should definitely check out if you haven't yet. However, There were a lot of cool stories and talking points about J-Tree, and climbing in general, that I didn't include, but are absolutely worth hearing. So, on this episode, I am presenting our full, mostly uninterrupted, conversation. Before starting the conversation, I do want to make note of a few things. First, at some point in the conversation, I note that Dr. Seuss based the Truffula Trees from the Lorax, ...on the Joshua trees. However, I can't actually confirm this. In the episode, I sound so sure of myself, but it's just one of those things that I heard about once and never actually verified. Also, at one point during the talk, my Zoom disconnected. Classic COVID problems. So, I decided to cut out the awkward, like, can you hear me yet, or still frozen... Other than that, though, the rest of the conversation is uncut. Anyway, without further ado, here's the conversation with Luke Michal. Alrighty. Well, yeah, so I I, I do first want to say that I learned about you through your podcast. Like, I know that you have the climbing zine, right? Yeah, yeah, magazine. Yeah. 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 Yep. The yep. climbing zine, um you have, you know, a couple books out, but I <laughs> the first thing I heard was your podcast, which I think is kind of funny cuz that's the last thing that you've done. Um yeah. yeah. But I was I was so taken away by it because you know, I'm sort of this normie new, you know, like guy who has, you know, a a regular job, um Started climbing like three years ago, and have, I mean, I've been very interested in getting outside. But it's a tough transition sometimes to go from outside or from you know inside the gym to outside. And anyway, I, you know, was listening to your podcast about you climbing um, and being a dirt bag, and it, it opened my eyes. In a lot of ways, because it kind of shows what it's actually like to be a dirt bag when you know you're not like a sponsored athlete. I I felt like <laughs> the the times that I hear about it, it's like Alex Honnold or it, you know whoever you know like these big shot climbers that are living at other vans but getting paid by North Face or whoever uh, to do that. Whereas you on the other hand, like this, that's just what you chose, right?
1: Yeah, 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 completely. And that is cool that you found out about my work through the podcast because I started the podcast is just a realization that needed to keep evolving with how I put out stories and the podcast has been more successful than I would have thought and it's reached more people in a way. That I I didn't expect because I just wanted to do it. You know, right. I feel like as an artist, you just keep trying to do different things, and you never know. Like I've had so much failure and, um, on my way to to being successful in some realms. So it was like kind of a pleasant surprise. And you know, like, you know, there's a lot of podcasts out there. I feel like climbing is not saturated. Uh, especially, and I think it's cool that you're doing like a geology themed podcast. Yeah. Because yeah training I feel like is maybe the only area that is saturated and I don't even listen to those that much unless it's an athlete I really like. Um, yeah. so I, I think it's cool that they're like, I feel like climbing is maybe one of the few areas where pot
0: the saturation level has not yet been reached, <laughs> you know? So, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, cause you know, I have like, I mean, aside from being really interested in climbing my career at, at the moment, and just my interest is within geology, so it, it lent really well to rock climbing, um, and yeah, it's. I, I noticed, I like, I, I was looking for resources online one day about the geology of different rock climbing spots, and there was, and you know, what made different rock, like, what about the geology made rock climbs cool? and there was just not really a lot online about it and i was like oh i <laughs> i see potential here um yeah yeah so yeah it's it's been pretty fun so far literally like 3 weeks ago my friend uh,
1: bryant a coin who who was sticker art was our sponsor for the first um season for the first 19 episodes and he was like yeah. you should do a column in the zine about the geology of the different climbing areas that are out there and then like a week later you emailed me and wanted to talk about talk to me about your your podcast with geology so that i thought that was pretty synchronistic too
0: yeah well it's i I mean now that i've you know i'm sort of like this geology guy people are asking me so many questions about Uh the geology of like their favorite spots because it's something that like you you know you look up at i don't know do you like the crazy big Yosemite walls and aside from just marveling at how huge and uh and incredibly prominent they are your next question is like how how did that happen (laughs) and I I feel like it's an answer that not a lot of climbers get so no or they just think they know something and make something up you know yeah Yeah. that's (laughs) that's a lot of it as well um well, anyway, the the last thing I wanted to say about your podcast, though, uh, and I mean this in the best way possible, is that it really like made me feel the way I feel when I read "On the Road" by Jack Kerouac. Like, mm-hmm. I feel like it just gives such a great sense, like like a like the real like reality of what's going through your mind when you're on an adventure like that. Like, it just feels so raw because in so many ways, like, an adventure can be embellished in a lot of ways and uh, in sort of, you know, Hollywoodized is, I guess, the best word I would say because uh, people tend to embellish the good parts, whereas I, I feel like you struck, struck a really nice balance between sort of the hardships and the sad emotions um expressed while you're on the road, as well as, you know, the really, really cool experiences that you have. Um I I, I guess I just wanted to say that. I didn't really have a question about it, but Yeah, no, I mean <laughs>
1: I uh I read I first read on the road when I was uh sixteen. Yeah. In like probably nineteen ninety four and then re I've reread it probably twice since then when I was in like my younger twenties, I'm, I'm 42 now. Um, but he, he was the main, um, influence on my style of writing. And then also because he died of alcoholism at at such a young age and, and never got to appreciate like being, he kind of just went from no one knew who he was to being very famous and, and not, being equipped to deal with fame i mean no one's equipped to deal with fame but so he was like his writing style was a big influence and then for me like the whole time it's like don't end up like jack kerouac you know right Um, and i think if jack kerouac i've said this before in my writing if i think if he would have had something like climbing i think he he could have maybe i don't know alcoholism is pretty scary stuff but right i I just wonder if yeah if he because if you read dharma bums
0: no, that's like next on my list.
1: Yeah, read that next. I think it's better than on the road, yeah. and it shows like a very brief time period where he was climbing mountains. And oh, nice! He realized, you know, he, you know. Can you imagine Jack Kerouac writing about the road, and then you imagine him writing about mountain climbing? It's, it's pretty, it's pretty great. I haven't read any of his stuff in years, so I don't know what it's actually like now to read it. But I would definitely say to to give uh, Dharma Bums a read.
2: Yeah, Yeah.
0: And I'll let you know what I think. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, Well, anyway, uh, I guess the reason that I called you is... So I recently went to Joshua Tree. Uh, This is actually my third time there. Third time climbing there. Uh, And it is just something else. And then when I heard your podcast, your story about living in Joshua Tree... I just got this, like, idea that in so many ways, the landscape lends really well, obviously, to climbing. And then the climbing lends really well to some of the experiences and the culture that you saw and described in your episode. Um, and so I kind of want to just, you know, talk about that and see where it takes us because, it you know, who knows? Well, anyway, um, I first wanted to ask you to describe Joshua Tree in your own words, because I feel like everybody sort of has a different idea of kind of what the landscape just looks like there.
1: Yeah. So my, um, I would say, home area of when I really first started climbing and dirtbagging was called Hartman Rocks yeah. near Gunnison, Colorado. Um and it's insanely similar to Joshua Tree. It's more of a mountain bike um place. It's really known for it's well known for its mountain biking um yeah. but I would live there for months on end in a tent um and so Joshua Tree felt like Hartman's um but with better rock, you know, better cracks, and just insanely bigger and also than in Southern California. Um, But right, right away, when I think of Joshua Tree, I just think of probably the most accessible climbing in the United States um, as far as location. And, you know, there's five, two cracks. You know, there aren't there aren't many places that have a lot of five, two cracks that you can solo. Um, And, yeah, I think about the soloing and I I really just think about the era where I live when I lived there, because it was right before social media and smartphones came in and, and completely changed the climbing world and, and completely changed the world. Right. So I was w- working in a restaurant, washing dish. I, I really, the showering thing is what I think about now that I used to go wash dishes and then go back and not shower after washing dishes. like That just, <laughs> that gets me. Yeah. Um, Wh- so yeah, if, I think about I really. Ask, well,
0: where yeah. was it that you were washing dishes? What was the.
1: Crossroads cafe. Oh, okay. Nice. I, I, how, is it still there?
0: I, you know, I think it might be, yeah.
1: I think it is, yeah. I think there's new owners now. Um, I work for these owners, and I think I, if I'm getting the story correct, there it was like a mother and a daughter, and the and the father died in nine eleven. Oh
0: geez.
2: And
1: they opened this restaurant up after that. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so I I just think about really hardcore dirt bagging, and um, I but just you know thinking about the place and the rocks it's just it's one of i think it's interesting because i feel like it's one area some people don't like you know
2: yeah
0: Uh, i don't know if you've come across that that, which is Um, kind of surprising
1: kind of surprising well i think a lot of climbers um aren't you know there's a there's a palette for certain types of climbing and and for whatever reason Joshua Tree seems to kick people's asses and humbles them. So that might be part of it. But for me, it's I love, I love, love, love that that type of climbing.
2: Yeah, well,
0: it's I mean, for the most part, it is not like climbing in the gym. You're doing like these slab problems where you're relying on the friction of the rock rather than any real holds um, in a lot of cases, or you're doing these crack problems which is sort of like in an uncomfortable position for your feet uh to climb up but i agree with you i mean i think the sheer number of areas and crags just makes it and how easy it is to get around and um find some you know find some of these places i also think that just going there and exploring is like none other like going, uh, and scrambling around on the rocks and just, you know, instead, instead like even just like leave your ropes in the car, just go and, you know, hike the trails and climb, you know, climb over rocks. Like you can get to the top of a lot of different, uh, climbs by just climbing around the back and just have a ball doing that. So, Mm -hmm. Uh yeah I think that I guess the only
1: sorry to cut you off yeah, yeah, the, go only, for it. the only thing I really would add to is just the Joshua trees themselves. Yeah. Um are amazing and and like a just a mystical kind of force and um and I know they're really they're they're going to be affected by climate change and they're also very old. Um in volume 12 of the zine I can send you a copy but and you can also find it online there's an article by Birch Malaki. Who is yeah. one of our writers, and she she writes about the Joshua trees and, and studying them in, in um, college, and then going out and visit like learning about how they were um, affected by climate change, and then going out there and experiencing them. But yeah, that, that I feel like that's the, the rocks, and and then the Joshua trees are just so unique and so amazing. Yeah, and yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah, I mean, I learned afterwards that uh, Doctor Seuss was actually. Uh, inspired by the Joshua trees when he wrote the Lorax, huh. oh, and it wow. totally makes sense. You know, you look at the Joshua trees and then you look at his drawings of um, the Truffula trees, and <laughs> they look very similar. And yeah, they do look otherworldly. Um, yeah. So, I, I and and it just adds, I I think so much to the the landscape because I I think it's such a unique rock climbing area it's cool that there's like this unique tree as well to go along with it yeah yeah um so what what so you you said you were there like just before like the era of smartphones like what like what years i guess were you uh camping out in joshua tree like
1: 2006
0: okay nice yeah and yeah.
1: Two years after I graduated from uh, college.
0: Oh, okay, nice. Yeah. And I, I guess I want to take one quick step back and say, so you graduated college, and was it immediately after graduation that you decided that you were just going to live out of your car? Or what was your process there? Yeah, I started doing that in college.
1: Yeah. Um, kind of after I found out you could do that, because I'm, I'm from Illinois, and... Um, I only knew really one climber before I moved out west. And um yeah, just just the fact that I knew I could do that. I was I kind of maybe thought I was gonna do that forever. Um which I guess is pretty common to hear people say if they have that opportunity. But Yeah. Um yeah, I I I don't really know what I thought. I was I thought I was maybe gonna be a climbing guide. Yeah. In that um that didn't work for me. Um And so, yeah, I was just kind of, I knew I could like wash dishes and climb. And it was kind of as simple as that. And I I did want to be a writer, but, um, I I wasn't quite super disciplined. It took me like a few years to get that discipline for writing. So yeah, I'm pretty sure when I graduated, I just wanted to climb and and live out of a tent. Yeah. And I wanted to be Jack Kerouac, you know? Right. Um, so I knew I wanted to be a writer, um, and it worked out, but it, yeah, there was definitely a few years where I wasn't very disciplined with writing, and um yeah, I was just kind of a climbing bum.
0: Yeah, for sure. So then, so two years into your journey, you landed in Joshua Tree, and what was I guess? And I, I mean, for those who don't know, there's a ton of camping in Joshua Tree, a lot of campgrounds, a lot of places to hang out. What was the scene like when you arrived uh in Joshua Tree all those years ago? yeah,
1: so um there's there's kind of a there's a funny story, so that winter I didn't actually plan on living in Joshua Tree. I went to Prochero Chico, Mexico, with my friend, yeah. and um it was terrible, so I just like set out to Potrero for the winter, not knowing where I would end up but knowing i had to take my friend i don't it's so blurry cuz it was so long ago but basically i went to um Potrero chico and it was just raining and the weather forecast didn't look great so it's like we were looking at where the weather was good and it was good in Joshua tree yeah and we were just like all right let's let's go to Joshua tree <laughs> and the year before we were there in Potrero and the weather was perfect so we had like a month of Perfect weather, great climbing. I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's uh I've not. Um it's a bit crowded these days, but if you can go and it's not crowded, it's a really cool experience. And even when it is, it's cool, but it's just kind of dangerous with a lot of climbers on chossy multi pitch routes. Right. <laughs> but anyway, so the year before I'm there with my friend uh Scott Borden, who's a professor now in where we went to college. And we met this girl, and we were hanging out. And um, at the end of the trip, she just looks at us, and she goes, she, like, did the prayer sign, and she was like, I will never see you again.
2: <laughs> and we're like, what? <laughs> like,
1: um, and it was ironic because she was, like, in the magazines as a, you know, like the, like a, a strong, cute girl climbing. And there was photos of her, you know, she was, like, hanging out with her photographer. And we'd always see her in the magazine. So it was, we thought it was funny that that's how she – she left it. So yeah, we drive for two days. We get to Joshua Tree. We're, like, getting pulled over by the border patrol because we were driving at night along the border, and my car was full of possessions, so they were, like, <laughs> checking us out. And yeah. uh, we get to Joshua Tree, drive for two days. We're super groggy. We wake up, and I literally hear this girl, like, talking. We're in the Hidden Valley campground. She's walking around the loop. I was yeah. like, I recognize that voice. And it was the girl in Mexico who told us she would never see us again.
0: From a year ago.
1: From a year ago. The first person we see when we wake up in the morning. (laughs) It was crazy. Um, And and that that kind of synchronistic stuff, I I just love. And I love to incorporate that in my writing. But Yeah. um, So that's how I got there. And then I had to take my friend Scott. He was going to graduate school in Prescott at the time. I had to take him... To Prescott, and after spending three or four days in Joshua Tree, I'm like, this is where I want to spend my winter. Yeah, and so uh, I did. Yeah, I went back. I got a job at the Crossroads Cafe and worked three or four days a week washing dishes and just scraped by enough. I I, I kind of bulked up actually because I was getting so much free food from Crossroads. Like right. at the end of the night, you know, because the cooks liked me. I think if you're if you're a nice, good, hardworking dishwasher, you'll develop a relationship with cooks. And so they were just feeding me all this free food, and I like I kind of like bulk, I I wasn't really like I was good. I got good at the short Joshua Tree climbs, but then when I like came back to Colorado, I was like kind of weak actually on like longer crack climbs and stuff. It's crack climbing is my favorite. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was it was that was kind of how it, it all went down. It was just super random. And once I spent a few days in Joshua Tree, I was like, this is this is a place to spend a winter. And my good friend uh, Sean Mattisavich. Um, had also spent uh, the previous winter there, and he was just, you know, always waxing poetic about it. And so I was like, I gotta try this out.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, and I, I think that's so funny that story, because I, I, I mean, I guess I'm, I mean, I, you know, the world's so big, but the climbing world, obviously, not that huge. And I'm sure that a lot of the dirt back Correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like a lot of the dirtbag climbers probably end up in similar locations because they're sort of following the weather and where the the good conditions are. So I'm not enti- actually entirely surprised that you met the same girl, you know, the you know from the year before, because I'm sure she was just like, oh, there's great weather in Joshua Tree. I, you know, I'll end up there.
1: Yeah, completely. Yeah, especially in the winter, you know, winter locations or, you know, especially in the United States, there's really only a handful of Mm. places you can climb in the winter and like try to live at too. Because I was living in, I lived in the Hidden Valley Campground um, the whole winter, which I don't even think you could probably pull that off anymore. But this was like right when they first even started charging for camping. So two or three years before this, yeah, people were really mad. You had to pay $5 a night for camping and people, the dirtbag climbers were outraged like (laughs) outraged which is and now it's probably fifteen dollars a night or something yeah lucky to get a site yeah
0: i don't even know but um yeah i I think it's uh yeah i mean that that's probably going to be the trend is that all these places that as they get more and more popular they're gonna you know continue to crack down on um you know in terms of like charging people and you know keep you know keeping the campgrounds clear like i i'm just I, i'm impressed that you were able to spend an entire winter in one campground like
1: how oh, yeah, were you i was able to do that i nailed it i had a whole routine yeah um and i'm not like recommending this to anyone now because i i think you know and i try to make this clear in my writing that as climbing gets more and more popular there's just you just got to kind of roll with the punches and 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 i think You got to give people equal access to, you know, you can't hog up a a campsite. But I knew when the Rangers did their rounds, um, I always stayed with other people and I would always get up in the morning before the Rangers came through and move my car once I had passed the 14 day limit. So I moved my car to a day use area and they would, when I would see the Rangers come through, I would leave camp and like hide behind rocks. (laughs) or like go solo something while the rangers did their rounds yeah and i pulled it off the whole time till the very end and um it was funny because do you know who the the climber jim bridwell is
0: no i'm not familiar he's a
1: yosemite legend he was the first person he was part of the first team to climb the nose on el capitan in a day oh he basically like started that revolution he did first ascents he's yeah look him up he's a legend um, but he had left. So at the end I was camping with these Spaniards and I've never seen him since, but they were great climbers, but just dirty, dirty humans. Like they were, it was two dudes like sleeping in a van together. Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like they weren't gay. They were just like two dudes, you know? Right. And they, but they were so dirty and, but they were like the sweetest guys, but they, they left our camp all dirty. Oh. And then the Bridwell wrote us a note and I was, he, he signed it the bird. And I was, I wish I saw the ner- the note, but it was like, get your shit together you've been here a while you know but those guys kind of blew my cover because they didn't keep their camp very clean and then that started to attract attention and then right at the end I got the note like you gotta go but that was probably at like a 100 plus day mark um wow but yeah at the time I was very committed to you know beating the rangers and there used to be I think it's changed quite a bit now because more climbers are rangers and people realize that we have to work with the government as climbers. It's absolutely essential. Right. Um, but there used to be this, the Rangers were the enemy, especially in Yosemite. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so you, you were just trying to like beat the Rangers, but now 15 years later, totally different story.
0: Yeah. It's (laughs) to diverge a little bit. It is kind of interesting how, uh, climbing has changed in that way where, uh, yeah, it's totally about the relationship with the local government and stuff. I, um, I recently did an episode about uh, Joe's Valley, where that I I mean the key to keeping Joe's Valley uh, intact was working with uh, the locals and um, the local government, and it worked out really well because now, uh, you know Joe's Valley has been protected. Although there is a coal mine that is set to open up set to reopen in joe's valley which i'm pretty concerned about but
1: yeah anyway. fucking coal we don't need that shit <laughs> yeah, no, <definitely> not. <laughs> yeah no um yeah i i think it's it's yeah it things have changed for the better in a lot of ways of you know i think you look at like the yosemite facelift um just really really improved relationships in yosemite yeah um, and, and you can, if you, if we all join forces, we can, I think, accomplish more. And, um, yeah, there just has to be management plans and, and all kinds of things. Um, but yeah, I, it, yeah, different times. And, um, that was just like kind of the end of one era. And I think the beginning of another era during that time period.
2: Yeah, for
0: sure. Um, yeah, cause now it seems like everybody and their mother has like a, have, a camper van that they can you know take to do you know to either you know spend in for months or you know a week on end and then uh, so there's i mean i think we're still in that interim period because there's uh, i mean a lot of climbing crags plus surfing spots and wherever else people dirtbag um that i think there's going to be more regulation or you know some sort of legislation that has to happen around that because i don't know like at least it's i mean in santa cruz uh the dirtbag thing has really taken off and i mean what they've done is they've just put like no overnight parking basically all throughout the town so it's i think pretty tough for people who are trying to live out of their vans but i think that there needs to be an a real discussion about it because um you know I, I've I think people should be allowed to do it, but there's there's definitely ways.
1: <laughs> yeah, and this this was kind of before the whole van life um thing took off really. Climbers have always lived in vans. Right. Um as as long as I've been climbing but it like wasn't a hashtag.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. There weren't hashtags then <laughs>
0: So getting back to uh, Joshua Tree, uh, I mean, there, there were some crazy, like really funny things that you described in your podcast. Like, uh, I, I mean, one that I, th- I found particularly interesting was the midnight naked disco party on top of yeah. a rock. Uh, can you describe that real quick?
1: You- oh god, just way, way too many penises. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, on paper it sounds great if there is a mix of, uh, you know, male to female or whatever, but there wasn't, and I, I that kind of defined that whole era of just ten, you know, twenty to one guys to to ladies camping out. Um, yeah, but it, it was fun. It was something to write about. Um, But honestly, the funny for me, they would yeah they these this group they would have these naked parties, but it was just always a bunch of naked dudes, which just not necessarily my thing. (laughs) I mean, no no disrespect to anyone if that is your thing, but I don't want to go to a party and just see a bunch of naked dudes. Yeah. Um, but really the funniest stuff with that one was kind of the antics to get up to the rock. Yeah. Because like you said, a lot of them have five two solos, but I linked up with this guy. And uh, he's like, are you trying to get up there? And I'm like, yeah. And, and, like, he had beer and I didn't. So I was like, all right, he's got beer. I'll team up with him. Yeah. And we go up. There's a 5-2 hand crack up the backside of the blob. And, uh, you know, the greatest hand jams you could imagine. Low angle. Super easy for a climber. Right. But for – he started to climb the crack and I didn't realize he told me. So he's got a, a backpack full of bottled beer. Yeah. And he – he gets his hand jams and he starts to explain to me that he's never actually climbed before. <laughs> oh man. So I'm like, all right, I gotta, I gotta like coax him out of this, you know, like I, I don't want this guy's death to be on my hands, you know? Right. And so so I coaxed him out of it. And then I, I went up the five, two hand crack and you know, yeah, just a bunch of naked dudes on, on top of this rock. Um, but yeah, that was, it, it, it was, it was like a, it, it, it turned into a good story. Uh, but when I, yeah, when I think about it now, it just kind of defines that era. And that's another thing about climbing that just used to be so male centric and quite frankly, white male. Yeah. Um, so I, yeah, that, and that's where, you know, some, some climbers that are my age want the good old days back or whatever. But me personally, I, I think things are like better now. I mean, it, it's definitely nice to have less climbers to have things to yourself. I think there's, you know, that's, that's always a luxury that climbers want, but, um, yeah, just that, that air, Yeah. It was just such, it kind of really encapsulated that whole time period. Um, but yeah, that, that was, it's like a funny, it made for a good story, but when I think about it now, I was like, Oh, this is kind of weird.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, it's it's so silly and it's something that you can't really like, you couldn't like pull that off in Yosemite where you're like, okay, Naked disco party on top of El Cap tonight. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's quickly send a little more it. planning. <laughs> yeah. um, And I, I think that's, I, I, I can see how, I mean, yeah, like a lot, a lot of males and you probably couldn't pull that off today either because you know, this, that, and the other, probably somebody would complain or whatever, but sure. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. No, we
1: definitely pissed some people off that were trying to sleep. Below, right. but there were, yeah, there's this whole group I can still remember there at Camp 17, and they were just it was like a hippie group of people and probably a little more interested in substances than climbing sometimes. I mean, I remember I just go over there sometimes in the middle of the day, and there'd just be like people like laying on the ground, like because they were so high. It was like, Jeez. you guys, like, get it together, like, you do this stuff at night because I was really focused on, you know, I've I've always you know, partaked in campfire parties and stuff. But right. in that, that time period in particular, I was just like, I want to be as strong as I can and, and climb as much as I can. And yeah. so there was this hippie group and they just, um, they were pretty funny. Um,
0: yeah, yeah. that, that does seem because I, the, like climbing in so many ways, it seems like there's a sort of a balance of different people. Like there's the people who are really focused on being, like top tier spectacular athletes. And you kind of do need to be a spectacular in shape athlete to do a lot of rock climbing. But then on the other hand, there's like this wildness weird side of rock climbing as well, where you also kind of have to be a little bit crazy and a little bit out there to do some of the climbs. So I, I, and the, what you're describing sounds like sort of the confluence of both uh, you know, the, you know, strong people who are, you know, out there to climb and be these spectacular athletes and sort of the weird side where <laughs> you have to be, you know, this crazy person to, you know, climb on top of a rock to have a naked dance party. Like I, I think that there's, you know, it's like climbing and especially climbing in Joshua Tree sort of lends well to both of those sides to it.
1: Yeah, have you ever heard of Michael Reardon?
0: Um n- what is he known for?
1: Um uh, free soloing. So he he was basically like Alex Honnold level strong. Yeah. Um yeah. and he was also an uh 80s he was in an 80s hair band. Wow. So he was this dude who had flowing blonde hair. Looked like he was straight out of a, a metal band. And it's weird in climbing because, you know, if you ask someone in 2006, 2007, if they knew who he was, everyone knew who he was. But right. he died shortly after this in Ireland. He was um, free soloing these cliffs yeah. in Ireland. And he didn't die free soloing. He died um, a wave like came and got him like a huge undertow or whatever. I don't know the exact specifics, but yeah, a, a or... wave took him out to sea. And so he was around Joshua Tree that time period and he free soloed, uh, Equinox crack. He was the first person to free solo Equinox crack, I believe, wow. which is a five thirteen finger crack. And if yeah. you ever go to that thing, it's, it's hard. It's thin. It's hard. Um, yeah. he was free soloing at that level and I saw him about a year before he died in a slideshow he was giving and he was talking about free soloing El Capitan. So he was like, Whoa. So he was yeah, he, the
0: first person with that idea.
1: Um, You know, I know Dean Potter had that idea too. Uh, who's yeah. another climber who died. Right. Uh, who's was a free soloist. Um, But I think he, he, he exemplifies the spirit of Joshua tree. And then, you know, John Backer was was the guy before Michael Reardon, who was a free soloist as well. Yeah. Yeah. And so they were buddies and like Mm. um, they were both alive in that time period. And um, Backer died free soloing and Michael Reardon died while he was out free soloing. Um,
2: Yeah.
0: Well, why do you think that? I, I mean, free soloing in particular, like why do you think free soloists were so drawn to Joshua Tree. Is it because of the length of the climbs? Is it because of the nature of the climbs that maybe they're a little bit more protected? Like what do you think uh why why do you think that there is sort of like this nature of free soloing in Joshua Tree?
1: Cause they're so short. Yeah. 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 Um and it's the only place I don't free solo, but I would, you know, if I was in Joshua Tree, I would I would free solo some of these easy hand cracks that are five two, five three. Mm -hmm. I would just start my morning, you know, I just wake up and and maybe do that. So it's just so, it's so natural. Um, Like I said, I don't, I don't have the mind for free soloing, but the hardest free solos I ever did were, and they were only like five, nine cracks. But um, when I was in Joshua Tree in that time period, you just like look at it and you're like, "I, I could do that. And then sometimes it would actually feel easier than when you had gear on you. Cause you were like in a dihedral and then you're stepping on your rope and you got your, your, your gear. Right. And you have to you're actually,
0: you have to like pause to place the gear and yeah.
1: yeah. And you get more pumps. So yeah. I mean, I remember this 40 foot five, nine hand crack I soloed. It was just so fun. And I remember doing it on a rope a couple of weeks before and it, it literally felt harder on a rope. And I'm not that I'm not a free soloist. Like I'm, it's not my, my mind does not work you need your mind to work as a free soloist, but Joshua tree is, is a different story. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. And it, I, I think it also like, do, I mean, as if, you know, if you're a free soloist, sorry to go down this road a little bit, since I know you're not as much of a free soloist, but like, would you say that like hand, like crack climbing leads well to free soloing because, if you're good at it, it seems like it, it, you've, you probably feel a lot safer in a crack than you would on, you know, say a sheer face with a bunch of crimps or something like that.
1: Um, yeah, yeah. And it kind of goes back to that original um, concept in climbing of having three points on the rock. Yeah. Um, and I've also heard it said that a hand jam is like a belay. I think Steph <laughs> Davis has said that, and I think Dean Potter said that too. Um, you know, total bullshit, but right, <laughs> there's some truth to it. Um, yeah, so I personally, I we're not ahead.
0: condoning free soloing. I don't free no. solo. I'm not going to. But uh.
1: yeah. and even if we did condone it, you can find out if free soloing is for you when you get about ten feet off the ground. Like yeah. it's one of those things. It's like I don't. I don't think any representation of free soloing is encouraging it because you gotta, you gotta get 10 feet off the ground first. And, and most people are going to freak out and have to come down after that. But, um, yeah, I, I really, and I personally crack climbing, I don't know if I said this already, but crack climbing is my favorite kind of climbing yeah and it does feel incredibly secure in a hand crack more than a jug to me. Um, and like I said, if you get, you got two of your feet and you got one hand jam, that's three points of contact on the rock. Even if you slip one of your feet, you're going to catch yourself with that other foot and that hand jam. So,
0: oh yeah, I was going to ask, uh, <laughs> just, you know, what, what some of your favorite climbs in Joshua tree are oh, and, yeah. uh, what about them made them kind of interesting? If if you recall, no, I,
1: I do, um, Yeah. I definitely like had some projects and, um, yeah, like I said, I I liked all the crack climbs. So like I remember doing some climbs at the Hemingway buttress. Um, it was really fun. That's when I first saw Michael Reardon before he was famous. He was just this dude free soloing that had this golden flowing hair and that this was probably my first trip to Joshua tree was in about 2002 yeah or two yeah something like that maybe yeah I I should ask
0: so you went out 2002 and then have you I'm I'm assuming you've been back since right
1: since I lived there I've only been back once
2: oh wow okay
1: yeah yeah um for a very brief period of time so yeah I haven't haven't spent much time there since um most I climb mostly in like the Indian Creek Bears Ears National Monument area yeah now it's kind of like taken a full obsession over my life, um, for climbing and in Joshua trees, you know, 13, 14 hours away from where I live now in Durango. So yeah, I just haven't been back much, but, um, yeah, sorry. What was the question? Oh, um... I I was
0: asking, uh, what, what your favorite climbs are in Joshua. Oh yeah. Okay. Sorry.
1: So Yeah. yeah, the Hemingway buttress and then like horse and buggy. Remember that being really good. Um, I feel like any good like five eleven crack just was kind of where I was at in those days. There's the uh those two cracks on the rusty wall that are like splitters. One of them's a sandbag, I think, like O'Reilly's crack or something. Um I think Leave It to Beaver was a, a favorite. Um yeah,
0: Hot Rocks. And you said that, uh, I mean, you're you're regular at Indian Creek. Uh, you've climbed cracks all over the place. I, is there anything that sort of differentiates um, Joshua Tree crack climbing from other types of crack climbing? Because I mean, I'm again kind of new to this, but the way I understand it, with uh, and from pictures and stuff, I mean. Indian Creek looks like the purest type of vertical crack you can probably get. Uh where it's just like these huge vertical crack. I mean it looks so cool. I at some point I will make it out there. Um just these huge vertical cracks that go straight up. But from my experience Joshua Tree, the cracks can be kind of wonky where it's like they kind of will veer diagonally for a little bit and then kind of end and you'll have, you know, some crimps or some uh, some slab climbing and then you'll, you know, start on a crack again and it it, it can be kind of weird. So what is your sort of, what's your experience as a uh, self-proclaimed crack climber um, in Joshua tree versus some of these other locations?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think you nailed it by the way you described it. Uh, I would also add the sharpness of Joshua tree is is legendary. Um, you know, your, your rubber on your shoes is just not going to last as long there as it will in other places. Um, and yeah, the, the pure crack climbs were kind of, there's, there's some of them, but yeah, a lot of them, you know, you got to clip a bolt or two. Um, I, I definitely remember, you know, they're pretty strict about bolting there. So sometimes the bolts, Um, we're in weird places and you just can't do anything about it. You just got to accept the run out or, or back off. Um, but yeah, to me, uh, I enjoy all, all types of crack climbing, but because Indian Creek is so close to me, like I only live two and I live two and a half hours from Indian Creek. Um, so I've just gravitated towards that and probably lost like every time I climb, I only climb on granite a few times a year. Now we do have a small amount of granite here, um, but I mostly, I mostly do like limestone sport climbing around here and, and sandstone crack and sport climbing around here. Um, but I always find that it takes if, when I get back on granite, because I climb so much pure straight up crack climbing, I always feel a little bit off balance and it always feels a little bit weird. Um, yeah, Where I mean the Indian Creek is just so it's it can be very it can be very straightforward. There's plenty of variants in in Indian Creek and there's even, you know, arêtes and some face climbing a little bit, but um it's so straightforward on on the sandstone cracks because of geology probably, I would imagine. And then yeah. granite is just all over the place and you really got to and that probably goes back to why some people don't like it because they get on a 5'8 crack and they're a 5'13 climber in the gym. And they can't even climb a 5'8 crack and they come down and they're bleeding and their shoe blew out. So,
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, it's brutal. I mean, my fingers got so torn up uh, just being out there. And I mean, I climb outdoors somewhat regularly and it still wa- was pretty harsh. Um which of course can be explained with the geology in some
2: ways
0: (laughs) i mean to fill you in a little bit there's a chemical weathering process that happens uh for all granite but especially uh in joshua tree where um some of the minerals in the rock erode to become clay minerals and that creates these very rounded boulder surfaces. And when you combine that with um, the, you know, flash floods that have happened in the area and then before the rock got uplifted, there was a lot of water that seeped through the cracks. So there's a lot of, um, you know, intense uh, precipitation that these rocks have gone through in the past. Uh, when you combine that with this chemical weathering process called conchoidal weathering, you get these very sort of rounded boulder concentric crack or concentric, uh, shell type structures. Um, I haven't actually bouldered in, uh, in Bishop yet, but from what I've seen in pictures, it's kind of, it's a pretty similar process to some of the boulders in, uh, In the buttermilks. Anyway. uh, And yeah. And the. Chossiness and harshness of the rock. Can be explained in that same way. Because it creates these jagged edges. Where some of the minerals have been eroded. But others like the quartz minerals. Are still there. And so it can just slice right into your hands. Um, But in turn. It gives the rock such a nice friction i mean i can i i remember just standing out on that rock with you know regular tennis shoes just like walking up like a 30 degree angle which you cannot do in many other places Totally. um but yes i i'm is there anything else kind of you you had to say about joshua tree i mean I, I think we've touched a lot of the bases. I, another oh, another funny thing that I just remember about your podcast is the uh, naked surfing on the camper vans. Like I'm not sure how much the the naked camper van surfing happens anymore today, but it that that definitely seemed like a pretty funny thing that was happening at
1: the time yeah yeah um there's definitely clothed i think they call it like bago hopping i never did it because it's not my thing um but i think there's this you know there's this age-old thing of climbers kind of messing with tourists who just drive through you know and so yeah they would they would do that and go kind of the camp 17 people they would uh go through and jump on a bagel and everyone would make a bunch of noise. And sometimes they'd be naked and kind of, yeah, a funny, you know, like just talking about Indian Creek. Um, and, and we can do an Indian Creek episode too, if you want. Um, cause I'd love to learn more about the geology. I know some of it. Um, but there was this guy who we saw him kind of same thing. They were hanging out in J tree and then they went to the Creek and they decided to like do that in the Creek on like, it was probably the first people I ever knew that had a sprinter van and like yeah. badass climber, dude, Rob Van Arnhem and, and Stacy Van Arnhem's, his wife. And they like did that to him when well, he was like, they were driving through, I think the Super Bowl campground. And they like got on his sprinter and he was just like, he was super cool about it. He's like, what are you doing, bro? <laughs> like, you know, it's kind of the, you know, one thing when you're messing with some tourists that are, don't even know that you're on the van to like, taking that same tradition to Indian Creek and hopping on somebody's sprinter. And he was just like, what are you doing, bro? But some things that are, that work in one place don't work in another.
0: Yeah. Uh, Joshua tree. I, it it is. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm sure that there's different cultures at, at different crags and I'm sure that, the, you know, everything changed. I mean, you talked about like climbers jumping on tourists cars, but it, it almost seems like, the climbers now are the tourists in a lot of cases. Sure, there's yeah. uh, I, I mean maybe not you know not like it's not like every climber nowadays is you know a hardcore dirtbag. you know you have a lot of people like me who are you know sort of more weekend warrior ish at the moment and uh just got into climbing because of the gym not because of the outdoors um and so the, I I think that's that that's kind of an interest you know that's probably kind of an interesting shift I mean was gym climbing big when you kind of got started or you did you get started uh on the rock
1: no I gym climbing was the first type of climbing I actually enjoyed Um, oh no no way yeah so it's funny the um the largest gym in the world in the mid nineties was located in my hometown really in Illinois. Yeah. And in, oh, in, I, I in, should
0: mention, yeah. I went to the university of Illinois for my undergrad. Oh really? Oh <laughs> yeah.
1: no shit. Okay. Yeah. So that's 45 minutes from where I grew up. Where, where um, is that? I grew up in, in Bloomington normal. Oh no way. Yeah. yeah, yeah I have yeah,
0: yeah. spent time in Bloomington normal actually.
1: Oh cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's where I grew up. Um, I think I saw my first concert, Dave Matthews Band, at uh, the U of I.
0: Oh, at the spaceship!
1: Yeah, on my like 16th <laughs> birthday. Yeah, um, yeah. So you know, gym climbing, I, like talking about overlap of you know traditions and styles of climbing. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I was probably the like the first generation of of gym climbers. Yeah, yeah. Um, in I still really enjoy gym climbing, but no, it, it hadn't exploded. You know, I feel like there was a general explosion, I would say of, of big, nice climbing gyms that are amazing. You know, every time I go to a city, we don't have, we don't have a a fancy gym here. We have just a you know, small one. Um, but every, yeah, I love, love the new gyms. Um, but yeah, so I, I yeah, I'm a, I'm a kind of gym climber to start. And then I moved out West about six months after I started climbing in the gym. So oh, wow. it was like okay. pretty quick. Yeah, yeah. Pretty quick transition to gym climber to, you know, getting scared on five, eight granite cracks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I just think that, you know, overall I would say things are better now in climbing, um, because it's becoming more diverse. um, I think there's more of an alignment of willingness to work with, you know, the government <clears throat> and not like considering them the enemy. Yeah. Um. I think that, you know, that, yeah, like I said, there's, it's not just a white male dominated activity anymore. Like it was. Um. So, you know, I, I I've Alan Karn, who's this British climber, who's like 60 something and still crushing has this saying that the good old days weren't always, that good. Yeah. And, um, yeah, if I really reflect on my time in Joshua tree, it was a very, I learned a lot about myself and I learned a lot about, I think the greatest lesson I took away from that winter was that the climbing partners that you choose are everything. And for me, just to go shopping with random climbing partners, I often found that Oh, this is a total cuz up until that point I had just climbed with my friends and yeah. Yeah. when you're climbing with all these random people, you know, their attitudes, their um safety protocols, they're all quite different and so Sure.
0: sure. Can you expand I, on that I just, a little bit? Um,
1: yeah, yeah, so I remember one guy in particular, he had broken his leg the season before and he we were we we're climbing at the Hemingway Buttress, I believe, and he got on this crack and he he was just not solid. He he looked yeah. so sketchy, and he just broke his leg the year before. And I remember I was like, "Nah, I'm just not going to climb today with this guy." He 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 just his gear wasn't great. He didn't have a a good demeanor. Um, and in another instance, there was this gentleman who I climbed with a bit, but he just had the worst attitude. He was just very negative about a lot of things. And he was one of those people who's like, I hate He was Like, why are you here? (laughs) Um, So yeah, I I think between attitude and safety, um, that's, I think that's what I learned the most about my time. And granted, I learned how to be a dirtbag and evade the authorities, but I realized shortly after that's, that's not my life. You know, I'm not, I wasn't necessarily destined to like dirtbag it forever. I'm glad I had the experience, but it's like the people that you choose to be your company, it can even be life and death, you know? Because yeah. oh, someone sure. else can make a mistake that can kill you. Yeah. Um. Well, maybe J- not so much at Joshua Tree, but... Um,
0: Joshua Tree is a proving ground in a lot of ways for that because mm-hmm. it has these climbs that look not so menacing um, mm-hmm. when you're standing on the ground. Uh you know, it's a lot of sub-vertical, a lot of, you know, wide cracks. But the reality is, is that you have to have serious trad skills and, like, knowledge, you know, technical knowledge to be able to handle it. Because, mm-hmm. and, and I think it's a good thing that, you know, re, you know, reflecting now that there aren't a lot of bolted climbs there and mm-hmm. that the you know, a lot of the you know, if you want to top rope, you have to, uh, it, it's not, you can't just always set up a two bolted anchor because for people like yeah. me, it's, mm-hmm. um, it, it's definitely a proving ground in that way.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So where, like, where did you get the knowledge to like place gear and stuff? Oh,
0: I, yeah, I, I should, uh, <laughs> I should have prefaced this. I don't have that knowledge. Um, I'm okay, still, yeah. uh, sport climber top rope and uh you know top rope with two nice bolted anchors and uh bouldering but um sure. the reason i was able, i'm able to climb in joshua trees because i have parents who are willing to pay for a guide which i think is oh cool yeah yeah, yeah. um yeah. so we've been uh the the past couple years and yeah i should also explain yeah my parents climb too we all kind of got oh, into oh cool it at the same oh that's time.
1: awesome yeah oh, sweet
0: and so uh we we've been climbing with this guy named uh roddy McCauley for the past couple oh. years and yeah it's been yeah it's it's been really great you know he uh, i i think that there's there's a ton of guides in joshua tree because like you said it's one of the few places that you can climb in the winter and you can guide in the winter. And so there's a ton of great guides there uh if you yeah. don't have the trad knowledge like I do. Like I yeah. do
1: say. There's this guy uh Hobo Greg who is a guide there and I I met him. He he contributes to the Climbing Zine too, but he he'd be another good person to talk to with um uh, more of a more um recent experiences there uh he's he's a character too as as his name suggests
2: (laughs) yeah uh
0: but yeah so that's that's how i was able to do it but that's great i I,
1: I think that hiring guides and in learning from guides is is probably the best unless you have a mentor um who's been climbing for a long time who will take you under their wings which statistically just with the numbers it's it's impossible for every young person to have a mentor but I think, yeah, I think learning from guides is probably the best way to to not kill yourself right off the bat.
0: Yeah, and to actually get into it, um, mm-hmm. I I was going to ask you, how did you transition to becoming, you know, to being able to place trad gear and do cool, tra- you know, traditional climbs and really become an outdoor climber?
1: Yeah, I, I learned... Uh... Trag climbing um in college from our I learned a lot about placing gear from being on a mountain rescue team in college. My college actually had a mountain rescue team they still do yeah uh, in Gunnison, Colorado, Western Colorado University Um, so I learned a lot in that because you were building anchors that you would haul somebody up in a litter someone who had been injured, so yeah, you really learned how how bomber gear can be and, and how much gear you need to be bomber right and then um i i did a lot of trial by error making mistakes you know almost killed myself a couple times um yeah so there there's always that time period in track climbing where you kind of know you know enough to get yourself in trouble right um but yeah i, I think like learning on the ground is probably the best but then and I sh- I should also add, I did have a mentor. There was a guy who was a couple older, uh, or he wasn't even older than me. He just had, he had climbed when he was younger and he taught me some things, um, for the first couple years of climbing. So he would just kind of, um, you know, let me lead something and then he would critique my gear. So yeah. yeah, it was a combination of, of having a mentor, uh, mountain rescue team. And then I, I took courses at our college too. Um, they had a, an outdoor program where, you could learn from the older students. And then later I, I taught those classes too. So uh, yeah, it was a combination of a little bit of everything, but uh, yeah, mostly trial kind of by barrier error. Yeah. To
0: entry and pro- and for good reason Yeah, is uh, the technical knowledge. Um, and so, yeah, and I th- I think it can be hard though, if you are, especially if you're someone like me, where I have a full-time job, or if you're not like a dirtbag climber, always you know around climbing crags, practicing all the time, it can be a little tough. So you really have to commit a lot of time to it as well.
2: Um, but the
1: only thing I would add to is reading books,
2: for sure. Uh,
1: but I think now YouTube videos could probably do the same thing, maybe better.
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: I mean, pretty much any time. Uh, i'm I'm gonna go climbing on my own i watch like a youtube you know a couple of youtube videos is just a even though i know what i'm doing uh or even if i think i know what i'm doing i always watch a couple videos just just as a refresher but that's just yeah yeah um but yeah i mean i this has been (laughs) super cool so far i'm I'm struggling to think if there's anything else I want to want to talk to you about. I'm sure there is. I mean, of course there is, but in terms of Joshua tree, I'm struggling.
2: Um, yeah.
1: Well, when you get to uh, Indian Creek and you start to marvel at the geology there, we can, we can, uh, follow up on another conversation on that place.
0: Oh yeah. I, yeah. you know, it's so funny. I started this podcast and I started promoting it on the mountain project. Not really, knowing what would come come of it but i I got Uh a lot of positive feedback which was really really exciting and of course i got a million uh suggestions but Mm -hmm. i think the most suggested place was indian creek everybody's asking me like when are you going to go to indian creek when are you going to talk about indian creek and i i mean it's a place that i've looked at and just marveled at but i think i'm it but my barometers that i have to be able i have to have climbed somewhere and experienced it in order to talk about on a podcast that's uh non-negotiable and then i i think i still have a little bit more learning to do and uh experience to gain and just you know strength to build before i want to go out there so i'll let you know but it might be Yeah, yeah it might be a little bit
1: Sounds good. Sounds good.
0: Uh, anyway, do you have anything else uh, you want to say, sort of closing here?
1: No, I mean, yeah, I, I, I really feel very strongly. You know, I've been writing about climbing and, and telling stories for for twenty years, and really, the greatest thing uh, about climbing right now, I think, is our community and how we, you know, we get to spend so much time in nature. And for me, it now it's all about me giving back in the form of stories um, about my experiences in nature and then encouraging people who maybe have more power or or work at environmental organizations to kind of take our passion and and turn it in I, I'm not an activist, but i I spend a lot of time, I think, inspiring activists, so. You know, like Indian Creek is, um, you know, Joshua Tree was is protected by law because it's a national park. Um, and that had to happen from a group of people advocating for that. Same thing with Indian Creek is part of Bears Ears National Monument. And um, people had to, you know, there's this thing called the Bears Ears Tribal Council, which is a group of several Native American tribes who put together the documents to present to the government to protect that area. And we're still in the process of protecting it. So I feel like the greatest thing our community can do is to fight for, you know, you know, fight against climate change, uh, fight for the protection of of natural areas, um, moving towards a a climate economy, things like that. In my mind, that's, that's our job as people who have been so inspired and, and spent so much time and to have the privilege to be Americans who have time to spend at our national parks and protected public lands. And we, we need to continue, we need to fight for those public lands and, and fight for the preservation of our, our planet. You know, Absolutely.
0: So. I, I completely agree. Um, I mean, and it, it, it's funny. I, I think that sometimes these op the opportunity to uh, contribute and, Uh, save these places It, it can really fall into your lap sometimes i mean for instance for me you know i did this episode on joe's valley and through researching the episode i noticed that there's this coal mine that's trying to open up right uh right up the road from from joe's and it was like oh my gosh what is going on here and so now i've uh i'm you know trying to talk to you know, people from the access fund and wherever else to get a little bit more information and figure out, uh, where I can come in, come into play. But there, and, and there's so many opportunities like this where they're, you know, big and small to help protect public lands. Cause it, it is so important in my mind as well. Um, so I yeah, thank yeah, you so too. much for saying that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Of course. It's been a long journey of, of realizing what, you know, like a your purpose is. And for a while, I, I, I thought it was just climbing. Um, but it, it's climbing is like a s- source of inspiration for a greater purpose for me. Um, and I think a lot of climbers are, are on that path too. And I've, I'm inspired by people that are actually activists, um, that spend their lives, you know, doing this stuff. And I I look at it, it's my duty to inspire, um, To inspire people through stories.
0: And that was basically it. I cut my mic shortly after when we said thank you and goodbye. Truth be told, I didn't really know what to expect going in. I was just looking for a few clips of him speaking about his perspective on Joshua Tree that I could weave into my episode. But somewhere during the conversation, I recognized that there was so many cool topics that we got into that it was totally worth presenting the conversation in full luke you're an amazing person to talk to and i hope we can do it again someday so real quick i do have a few postscript notes i want to mention first of all i have started reading dharma bums and am enjoying it so far more importantly moving forward i want to talk to more people like luke within the climbing world as well as people with geology backgrounds I like the idea of presenting clips in an episode and then releasing the full interview slash conversation later on. Feel free to let me know what you think of this format and the conversation overall, though,
2: and I will catch you on the next one. Jazz Hammer, out.